So if um, next Sunday's Pentecost, then you also must know that this is the last Sunday of Easter in the Easter season. And so kind of what we've been talking about throughout this Easter season is the appearances, post-resurrection appearances that Jesus made to various disciples, to Mary standing outside the tomb, turning sadness into joy, to the disciples in the upper room, turning fear into confidence, uh, to Thomas turning doubt into faith, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus turning confusion into clarity and in the breaking of bread, um, to Peter along the shore of the lake turning his guilt into forgiveness uh, love and, and purpose. He gave him a task. And then last week we kind of looked at, um, we sort of backtracked a little and looked at what happened when Jesus died and descended to Sheol or the place of the dead and proclaimed good news to the captives there, to the prisoners, as we read in First Peter. Um, in all of this, we have been I think been given snapshots, been giving examples and pictures that we can see and begin to understand of what it looks like to experience resurrection life with Jesus. You know, all those things happen. Our sadness is turned to joy, our, our fear into faith, and so on and so forth. Um, our passage this morning comes from 1 John chapter 5, and it's, um, it's one of the liturgical readings for the last Sunday in Easter. So you know people have thought about this and said, well, what would be a good sort of summary passage to bind all this up together? And uh, so they've, they've chosen this passage from 1 John. And it is a picture of Easter life. About how you get in on that life of Jesus which has conquered death and which is being shared with disciples. So I want you to listen carefully and listen well. This is 1 John chapter 5, verses um, uh, 9 through 13. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you. O oh Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. So again, the passage is, is pulling all of Easter together for us. Um, it's, the, it's the story, it's the account 
of God who has come to be with us, who has died, and who in dying has conquered death, has risen again, and now is opening up the kingdom to all who believe. When you believe in Him, in the Son, in Jesus, you have eternal life. That's the good news that we celebrate this time of year. It's the thing that we're grateful for. It's the thing we're hanging our hats on. Um, It's the good news to which we cling and which clings to us. But it was interesting to use that word testimony in in the passage, I think. You know, when I think of testimonies, I think it is more often a thing that uh, that we do, that that you might do. You remember last week I was encouraging you to give your testimony? I I told you the story of of, of Tom, who's in a rehab facility in Elizabethan, um, who called me on the phone last week, said he'd been addicted to drugs and alcohol for 25 years, he and his wife, that he'd been in and out of prison and jail and rehab and this, that, and the other. And he said, I'm in a year-long program. I have given my life to Christ. And I'm experiencing freedom. He said, I'm experiencing that because of the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ, and the word of our testimonies, quoting from Revelation. And so the encouragement for each of us last week was to think about in the end, um, our testimony as a participation in our salvation, as a participation in the kingdom that God is bringing so that, like Tom called me and, and gave me massive encouragement by sharing his testimony with me, so too are we able to do that for others and so lead more and more to the good news of Jesus, the Son. You know, we talk about testimony. I've shared testimonies with you before. You know, Dave Calvert, who... Uh, a member of our church plays at, at 9 o'clock in the, on the worship team. Has an amazing testimony. I sent this out to you on a video during COVID, right? Do you remember this? I don't know if you watched it or not. Um, table talks or whatever we, we coined that. Uh, and Dave, some years ago, had a series of, of massive heart attacks. Uh, heart stopped on multiple occasions, but continued to, to, to come back and, and has had uh, a remarkable testimony to share about God bringing him through that and all of the little pieces that, that lined up. In fact, um, his son Elijah told him, subsequent to all this, um, oh, I knew you were going to be okay because um, I saw Jesus and he told me that. And he said, well, where was he? He said, he was standing beside you. And he said, what did he look like? Well, I couldn't see him. His face was too bright. Elijah was four at the time. Um, talk about Dave. Talk about Dolly uh, Downey former choir director, organist. You know, we've shared her story before. Um, Dolly, who we kind of hit pause during the service sometimes so she could get up and make her way across. Dolly, who was in her 80s. Um, uh, Dolly, whose life was led by the Spirit. Dolly, who had had an encounter with Jesus during an incredibly difficult period of her life. Um, Jesus, who came and met her in that moment and walked with her for two weeks, and it was unlike anything she's ever experienced in her life. Others asked her about it. She got to share a testimony about it during that time period and since then. Got Dave and Dolly. Let's stick with with the alliteration theme, right? Douglas, do you remember Douglas? uh, Met in Nicaragua, former gang member, met Jesus. His life was turned around. Uh, He forgave the other gang who had killed his family, part of his family. Forgave them 
in Nicaragua was, was taken in as the leader of this gang and then went around to other gangs on behalf of the government and began to bring reconciliation and peace. Those are pretty dramatic testimonies. Maybe yours is more like mine. You grew up and had Christian parents and were raised in a Christian home and went to church your whole life and it's just been sort of a series of maybe maturation and thinking you've got it figured out, but then realizing how little you do and how much more you need Jesus than you ever thought. And maybe, maybe your story is like Edwina's, who grew up and... How many siblings did you, did you have? Seven, seven, and they get around the breakfast table every morning. And I mean, my family with three kids was late to church this morning. And um, they would get up and have breakfast and have time every day for Bible study and prayer before school. The Lord does work miracles. (laughs) So I think a testimony is something that we do, that I do, that you might do. Our passage said that God has a testimony. You ever think about that? And that God has shared His testimony with us. And if you think you're moved by these other testimonies, which are in fact very moving and powerful, how much more so does would God's testimony move us? What's God's testimony? Jesus. That's God's testimony. The Word became incarnate. And so, and so the, the story that God tells, the, the testimony that He gives, has a sequence. Um, and the eternal Son of the Father is with the Father in the, in the Spirit. And He becomes incarnate. So He's born of Mary. We're telling the, the Christian calendar year here. We've got Advent and then we got Christmas. And then He matures and grows up and he enters into life and ministry in a particular way and he goes around and he begins to teach and he begins to heal and he begins to share love and he begins to tell people about what God's kingdom is like and tell and announce good news for them he begins to instruct them in the ways of the kingdom where God rules over all he turns the world upside down and gets everyone's attention and they think he's going to win and become messiah by Violence or uh, by keeping the rules in a particular way or these different strategies, but none of them guess the next part of God's testimony whereby He shows the fullness of His love for us by dying for us and dying for you. And then the descent into the tomb, into the grave, into Sheol we talked about last week. And then the resurrection which we celebrate at Easter And then there are 40 days during which time Jesus appears to the disciples. That's what we've been talking about the last four or five weeks. The resurrection appearances for 40 days. But then on the 40th day, He takes the disciples outside of Jerusalem, up onto a mountain. Everything's happening on mountains, right? means we're in a good spot here in Newland. And so He takes them up on a mountain and He raises His hands to bless them. And as He's blessing them, He's taken up into heaven and passes beyond their sight. It's the ascension is the next part of God's testimony. And then, of course, next Sunday, 50 days after the resurrection, Jesus sends the Spirit. 
And we look forward to his appearing once more. His return is coming again and the last things. The new heaven and the new earth coming together. That's the sequence of God's testimony. And so this morning I want us to focus for a moment on the ascension. That's what we're going to talk about. The ascension of Jesus. Um, you know, we're, we don't forget the cross. We don't forget Easter. We don't forget Pentecost. Those, we celebrate those things on Sundays. But Thursday of this week, actually, was the day, 40 days after the resurrection, when we celebrate the ascension. And we're going to talk about sort of what's involved there. Um, what happens there. Some significant things. And... Uh, as we do, I want to give you two pictures, kind of two mental images that might um, help you understand the ascension a little more clearly and perhaps how it connects to your actual life. Um, two pictures. The first is homecoming, and I gave him a quiz this morning, and Marie Gwynn uh, came at nine, and uh, she answered the question. So you don't get to answer, Marie, but does anybody remember... Uh, story about a prophet who was taken up into heaven. He had another one that was with him. Yeah, Elijah. That's right. So we're going to, you we're going to talk about Elijah in just a little bit. So homecoming and Elijah. Those are the two images. So, so first, I want us to, to think, and, and we're following Karl Barth here in his understanding of uh, perhaps a, a helpful way to understand Christ's ascension into heaven. Christ is sort of like the prodigal son in that he goes to a far country. And then he returns. So you can see how Jesus is incarnate and comes to walk and to live among us and then also returns to the Father. Now do you remember what happened when the prodigal son returned home? What, what did they do? They had a party. They had a feast. Now we have homecoming, third Sunday of August, typically. And what do we inevitably do the third week end of August when we celebrate homecoming? What do we do? We eat. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. We also worship first. But then, <laughs> then we go and we have a huge party and we eat. We feast together. There's something about homecomings that lend themselves to this, isn't there? Um, in June, I'm going to be going to Hillsboro, um, where my, we're going to put my grandparents' uh, ashes, my granddaddy and my granny's ashes, into a columbarium at the church where uh, it's been important in their life there. And so uh, that's where a lot of my dad's side of the family lives. And so we're, we're all going to get together, and we're going to put the ashes in, but we're also going to have sort of a family reunion. And like the thing that's been planned the most thoroughly so far is the different times and places we're going to eat. Right? So when you have homecoming, when you get together, you feast. You have a party. You enjoy one another. You probably have mental pictures of times you get together with folks in your family and that sort of thing happening. Can you imagine what it would have looked like for the, for the Son of God to return home? to the kind of welcome he would receive. 
I don't know that we can actually begin even to imagine uh, how glorious and splendid that would be, but it's part of the reason why in the book of Revelation, when it talks about these glimpses that John has into the, uh, into the throne room of God, into what heaven will be like for the rest of us, a banquet feast is described. It is a banquet feast. It's why the high point of our worship happens here at a table where we participate here and now in the banquet feast and the worship that is going on in heaven. That's the the place where we will be able to pull up a chair and to celebrate and to eat with the Lord who will serve us. But it's not just a homecoming in that sense, is it? Um, you know, a few years back, uh, during one of, the, one of the conflicts in the Middle East, a number of um, U.S. troops were engaged in, in conflict. And, and occasionally we would get a, we'd get a video that would go viral, and it would be of a soldier who returned home to the surprise of his family and showed up at a birthday or showed up at a, at a, at a wedding for a, for a son or daughter, or showed up at a significant event, and would kind of walk around the corner. I mean, you've seen these videos, right? Just melt down the tears, the joy, the excitement, the gratitude, the relief. I mean, just all of that together. Um, if that's what it looks like for us human beings, can you imagine when Jesus has come for us and then returns home. Um, But returns home also, in a sense, as a soldier, as one who is conquered, as one who returns victorious. But but because they have acted sacrificially and heroically, you know, there's another element to folks who return home from, from war. There's the family element, but there's also the element uh, in which they are honored and revered. And they come and They're given medals to wear around their necks and pins to place upon their uniform. And Jesus receives a crown and He bears wounds in His hands that are marks of His glory and His worthiness to receive all thanks and praise. Can you? you, I mean, you see Jesus has come and conquered sacrificially, giving Himself up for us. Can you imagine what sort of reception He receives and honor He has shown? The Scriptures say that angels long to look into the mystery of God loving us so much He becomes incarnate and rescues us through death into life. The angels long to look into this. Can you imagine the honor He receives? That kind of homecoming. I hope that begins to just kind of help you imagine a few of the different elements. A homecoming. But I'm going to give you just a few of the main things that this homecoming accomplishes. Right? So some significant things happen when Jesus, it's like the fulfillment of what He's done on the cross and in the resurrection, it is now taken up. It's sort of like the final moment that, that finishes everything. Um, one thing it does is it marks the end of the resurrection appearances after Easter. Forty days, Christ is appearing to the disciples and to others. And once the ascension happens, those stop in the particular way that they have been happening to that point. Um, And when Christ ascends, it's not just a homecoming, it is also a coronation. 
Because Jesus has come from the highest place, He's gone to the lowest place, and He's emerged again. He is now Lord of heaven and earth. You know, Philippians 2 talks about this. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord over everything and everyone, things visible and invisible. When He comes back, it is a coronation ceremony. He wears the crown. He's now King of all. Jesus isn't just the King. He's also the High Priest. Now, this is what the book of Hebrews treats with such um, uh, significance. Jesus is our high priest. In fact, there's a reason we say every part of the liturgy. The assurance of pardon. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. He is the king who reigns. He is also the high priest who does what? Who prays for us on our behalf. Um, part of what Jesus is doing now in His ascended glory is He's praying for you. And the disciples were a little worried about, well, you're leaving us? What are we, we going to do? Jesus says He must do it. Jesus prays for you. Uh, like in those times where you really know you need it. And also in those times where you really need it, but you don't know it. Jesus, the thing that Christ is doing at the right hand of the Father is thinking about you, praying for you, interceding for you, making sacrifice for you, seeking to bless you. You are still the focus of His love. But now He's able to do that in a, in a, in a universal way. And in a universal sense. Um, Hebrews says that Jesus is your advocate before the Father. I can't think of a better one, really. Um, and then here, most mysteriously, well, I got one more. So, so this also inaugurates a new epoch in human history. We've talked about sort of the our, our uh, inquirer's class. We were talking about this a couple weeks ago. We've talked about it before. Uh, the five acts of the play um, of the Christian story, creation and fall, Israel, Jesus, the Holy Spirit in the time of the church, and then the last things, so the unfolding of that story. And so the shift from the time of uh, Christ to the time where the Spirit empowers the church happens, the, the transition happens here as Christ ascends and then sends the Spirit at Pentecost. That's where that's that shift is beginning to happen. Uh, but most mysteriously, and I don't even know how to say this, it, um, human language fails us, but most mysteriously, human life, the human life of Jesus Christ in the ascension has been taken into the very being of God. Our humanity, which has been gathered up in Jesus, has now been taken into the very being of God. which in some small way gives us a glimpse, even though we can't even see it and understand it, right? Of what your destiny is. The apostle says that our lives are hid with Christ in God. And that one day we shall realize them. We shall come into the fullness of them. And in Jesus Christ, you share in God's being. 
Yeah, so while you're eating your, you know, nightly snack of cereal tonight, turn that over in your mind and say, thank you, Lord. Um, so there's a lot happening with the ascension, right? There's, there's part of it. Uh, not all of it. There's part of it. Now I'm going to tell you a story. This, so this is maybe less, less technical. Um, and I think this gives us a grasp as to what does the ascension do for our lives? How can we receive that? How can we enter in a little further? So we talked about, hey, Jesus took the disciples up on a mountain and ascended so that he could then send the Spirit to them. Well, there's, there's two places in the Old Testament. I always like to look and see, like, what are the things that sort of foreshadow or set up uh, the fulfillment of Christ's work? So there's Elijah, and, and we see Elisha with him. But there's an older story of someone who goes to heaven. You might know that. Genesis 6. Enoch is his name. And the, the, the scriptures tell us that Enoch walked with the Lord and then he was not with them anymore because the Lord had taken them. And Hebrews in the New Testament comes along and says that, that Enoch didn't taste death because um, he walked with the Lord and the Lord took him to heaven. All right, so we can look at these places and begin to get a glimpse. Elijah and Elisha. You remember Elijah, don't you? Uh, the prophet, you know, when Jesus is on another mountain, he's transfigured before them. Moses is there, and Elijah is there as sort of the chief of the prophets, representative of the prophets. And Elijah lived during a time when the northern kingdom of Israel, um, King Ahaz in the northern kingdom, had married the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon, Jezebel. And Jezebel had come, and she had brought her God with her. Uh, brought the worship practices and the cultic rituals of Baal worship. Baal is the God that they worshiped. Into Israel. And brought all, uh, just a huge swath of prophets with her. And obviously this was problematic. She was beginning to lead the people into the worship of this, uh, of this foreign God. And Elijah appears on the scene as one who's sort of saying, guys, this, this probably isn't a good look and good idea, and this isn't going to work out well for you. And um, so they, they don't particularly like Elijah in the palace. He prays, prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? He prays that it would not rain to get their attention. And it doesn't rain for like three and a half years. So he gets their attention. And he goes back and he says, all right, we need to establish here once and for all who the true God is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go up, you guess it, on a mountain. And I'll go and I want all, Jezebel, I want all of your prophets to come too. There are like 500 of them. And they go up, all the prophets of Baal go, they're going to set up two altars. And Elijah says, here's the contest. All the prophets of Baal are going to pray to see if Baal will light this altar on fire. And I'm even going to let you guys go first and see what happens. So they come over. All these 500 prophets begin to pray. They go on and on all day. And Elijah's like, guys, maybe, maybe Baal's sleeping. You know, he starts kind of giving him a hard time about this. Nothing works. The altar doesn't catch fire. Elijah for effect, <clears throat> goes and dumps a bunch of water all over his altar until it's soaking wet. 
he kneels and prays. And I mean, you can imagine, you know, I tend to imagine like a pillar of fire, but perhaps it's uh, from, from the Hebrew press, it's more like a, a lightning bolt comes from the sky and lights the altar aflame immediately. And it's clear that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's revealed his name to the people by the burning bush, I am who I am, uh, the source of all being, is the true God. And this is the Elijah we're talking about. Uh, the Elijah who, who was victorious over the prophets of Baal. The Elijah who went back um, to the course of Jezebel and was run out of the country and was in fear for his life and got depressed and then went up on the mountain again and didn't meet God in the earthquake or in the fire or in the tornado, but encountered God there in the still small voice. It's this Elijah that we're talking about. And he knew that he was soon to depart the world. And he was walking with Elijah, this companion of his. Um, he was the leader. Elijah was sort of the, uh, the disciple prophet who was learning to be a prophet from him. And they, they started out, let's see if I can do the map in reverse. So here's Jerusalem. And they start in Bethel and they go to Gilgal and then they come back. So it's this odd circuitous route. And then eventually they cross the Jordan. But in each of these little cities, there were three stops he made, and there were schools of prophets in those places. And so perhaps Elijah, they think, was saying goodbye to each of those. The prophets in those places recognized that he was about to be taken, that he was to depart the world, uh, but they didn't say anything about it. And so they come to the Jordan River, Elijah and Elisha together. You know, the Jordan River um, where Jesus was baptized, right? The Jordan River. Um, where Joshua took the people as they went from the Exodus into the Promised Land, and they took the Ark of the Covenant across, and the water stood up and parted again, just like the waters of the sea had parted as they were escaping slavery, a sign of God's promise, the sign that God was with them, holding the waters of chaos at bay and giving them a path to life. Elijah and Elisha come to the Jordan River, and Elisha takes his, his mantle, his cloak, and he hits the water, Lo and behold, here it goes again. The water parts. And as they're crossing over, Elijah says to Elisha, go ahead and you know, ask, ask anything of me. And he asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Now we might, I, I, immediately, I hear that and I'm like, oh, he wants twice as much as Elijah? But uh, if, you were inher if, a, if a father died... This is the way inheritance was passed down. If a father died, everyone would get a portion of the inheritance, an equal portion except the oldest son who would get a double portion. So it's not twice as much as Elijah. It's just twice as much as anybody else is kind of what he's asking for. And Elijah says to Elisha, you have asked a hard thing. If you see me as I am being taken up, it will be given to you. So go a little further. Go a little further. And Elijah goes a little, fur Elijah goes a little further. And they see... A fiery chariot, Elisha sees a fiery chariot come and gather Elijah up and take him up into heaven. Which is very unusual to be described that way, not just the fiery chariot part. But remember, Sheol was down. Very unusual for an account to speak of him being taken up. Elijah sees it. You know that song, Sweet, uh, what is it? Come, yeah, Sweet Chariot. Swing down. Is it swing down? How's it? Swing low, sweet chariot. Right? That's where it's coming from. This story. 
And so Elisha sees it and he, he, he takes up the mantle uh, that belonged to Elijah and he comes back to the river. You know, he's got to test it out a little bit and he smacks the river. Poof, opens up. And Elisha, now with a double portion of Elijah's prophetic ministry, is taking on that mantle and he's going out to do God's work. So as we have that in our mind, look with me again at Jesus who takes His disciple up on a mountain. Jesus who is taken up and ascends into the sky. Jesus who says, wait just a minute in Jerusalem, in the city, and I will send my Spirit upon you so that you can carry out the work I have set for you. It's, I mean, it's Elijah and Elisha over again, isn't it? If you're trying to understand what part do I play, Jesus has ascended and now gives you His Spirit so that you can go back, parting rivers, making a, a, a dry land, making a straight path for others to come to know Jesus Christ, making a straight way into the church so that they can be gathered with God's people, serving, loving, blessing, healing. That's what's happening here. Jesus ascends so He can send His Spirit to all of us. So that we're each doing that in our lives. And together. So we can go out into the world bearing a mantle. A mantle of Christ. Who promises, just before His ascension in another place, that He will never leave us or forsake us. That He will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's God's testimony. The question that hangs in the air is what will yours be? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.